1: Oh, thank you so much, Uh, Crystal. And I too would like to welcome everyone to today's cancer care workshop Breast Cancer and Older Women. Uh, It's an important topic, and it's a topic that we actually don't present on enough, actually, in terms of offering workshops. So um, it's, uh, and and, uh, actually, breast cancer, of course, is occurs more frequently in in older women. So you'll hear more about that throughout the program today. Now today's program is a collaborative effort between cancer care and many other cancer organizations as well as many other breast cancer organizations. And because of that collaboration and because of your interest in the program today, we have over 529 participants on the call today. And you come from all over the United States, so from all different parts of the United States, different regions. And we also have international participants from Canada, Guatemala, India, the Philippines, and Venezuela, so a bit of a global call as well, and we are delighted to have all of you on the call today. Now today's program is supported by Genomic Health, Inc., and I really want to thank them for their support of this program. And we have just the most wonderful speakers on our program today, so I want to begin by introducing our first speaker, Oncology Mayo Clinic, and he will be addressing an overview of breast cancer in older women, current standard of care, and clinical trials, how research contributes to your treatment options. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Ferrer.
2: Hi, thanks, Carolyn, and and it's my great pleasure to participate in this uh, uh, conference. And uh, thank you all for um, for participating on it. And I agree that this is a very uh, relevant topic that doesn't get uh, addressed frequently, even in 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 regular uh, oncology conferences. I would say so. It's something we're paying more and more attention. So, as a brief overview, I think that I want to start by um, you know making everybody aware, as you may as may know already that. That, uh, you know, age and increasing age is a, a primary risk factor for breast cancer. And uh, of about a quarter million cases a year that we have of breast cancer, you know, uh, nearly half of them happen in women that are older than uh, 65. And the good news is that. Uh, Typically, um, for the majority of older women that have um, breast cancer, they tend to have a disease that tends to be a slower growing and uh, tends to have a more favorable biology that allows us, uh, in many cases, to use less intensive uh, treatment regimens, and there are some tools that we can use to select that, as as my colleague will address later, but um by the same token, because uh, uh, as we age, we end up having um, additional um, conditions that we get diagnosed with and we end up having other concomitant diseases, um, the treatment of uh, older women, uh, particularly if they have other medical comorbidities or conditions, uh, can be uh, uh, fairly challenging uh, because uh, there may be competing risks and there may be certain certain medications that, that uh, we cannot use as easily uh, in someone that has a particular condition, and for that reason, um, uh, women that get diagnosed with uh, breast cancer at an older age, uh, in general, um, appear to receive less intensive treatment uh, compared to uh, a younger person that diagnosed with the same disease. And as I mentioned, uh, this is um, uh, often due to uh, other uh, medical conditions that make it somewhat challenging to uh, recommend more intensive regimens, uh, but also because of the decreased uh, uh, physical uh, stamina and activity, if you will, uh, of a patient as as they age. So uh, even though we are talking about older women, um you know as a fairly generic term i think that more importantly than the chronological age of uh, of a patient diagnosed with breast cancer is is how uh, how uh, well uh, is their physical condition in general? Do they have other uh, medical conditions, or are they healthy otherwise, uh, aside from the breast cancer? And and how active are them? So uh, in many cases, it's not so much about the age, it's more about uh, how physically fit that person is uh, in order to tolerate some of the treatments. So uh, when we uh, try to define what a standard of care for uh, older women and uh, in, in breast cancer is, uh, really there are many factors that we take into account, and I don't think that we can say there's a single standard of care. And particularly in, in older women um, with additional challenges, there uh, there's a very clear need for a team-based approach. And, and uh, come up with a personalized regimen rather than a than a blanket uh you know generic regimen that can be recommended for everybody so it's very important to uh, have conversations about what the priorities for that particular patient uh, and family are, what are some challenges uh, including the surrounding support network that they may have when we uh, make decisions so uh, that in addition to of course taking into consideration uh, the cancer characteristics themselves so there are, as the audience may know, uh, multiple subtypes of breast cancer, and depending on the subtype that someone has, uh, different treatments are recommended. Um, as I had mentioned early, uh, in older women, there's a higher frequency of tumors that tend to be slower growing and have a more favorable biology. And by that, I mean that uh, the vast uh, you know, majority of patients will have a disease that is hormone uh, receptor positive. And uh, that affords us the opportunity to use Treatments that are more targeted uh, and that specifically block those hormone receptors, and in many cases, in some cases, um, allows us to avoid other treatments uh, like chemotherapy that would have uh, much, uh, many more side effects in those patients. So um, uh, we we take that information into account. Uh, in addition when someone has a her2 positive disease um which is a genomic alteration that can happen in a subset of of breast cancer patients you know we can also um incorporate treatments that even though are not as convenient as hormone therapy are also fairly well tolerated and and easier to administer in someone that has other medical conditions um so, um, as I had mentioned, uh, the impact of comorbidities or other medical conditions on the decision of treatment can be can make things um, uh, a little more complicated in the elderly patients compared to a younger patient. For example, um, as uh, women age, of course, there's a higher frequency of cardiac disease, and many of the treatments that we recommend in breast cancer can also have an impact on cardiac health. And I think those are, um, you know some of the more salient challenges that we face when we're trying to come up with a with a cohesive regimen for a patient um diagnosed at an older age now uh, I've been focusing mostly on on systemic therapy and 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 uh, chemotherapy versus hormone therapy and those type of decisions but uh in addition uh given that the biology of breast cancer at an older age tends to be of a cancer that grows much more slowly. Uh, we also have opportunities for uh, provital So uh, it's, um, it's not uncommon that in a woman that has uh, breast cancer diagnosed, particularly after age 70, for example, that if uh, um, uh, someone has a, a relatively small tumor and there's no evidence of lymph nodes involved, uh, by physical exam uh, that the surgeon may uh uh decide to not operate on the axilla and not remove any lymph nodes and that's something that uh in the in the short and long term can decrease the likelihood of that woman developing um uh, arm symptoms like lymphedema or or uh, problems with range of motion of their uh, extremity, so I think that uh, those are some of the unique things that we can that we have to think about when we have those conversations uh, with older women with uh, breast cancer. And as I had mentioned, uh, there are some uh, women that can also avoid uh, radiation treatment, even if they opt for uh, breast conserving therapy, and that's just because of the uh, slow growing nature of this of this cancer that uh, truly may not uh, cause any short term um, uh, difficulties, and, and if it's a cancer that can grow very slowly over many years, in some situations, um, you know, really, uh, you know, we have to take into account the life expectancy of the patient based on other, just on age and other um, medical conditions, and for that reason, uh, top of mind is always to not uh, uh, pursue a treatment that may cause more trouble than than actual benefit for that particular patient. Um One of the um, uh, challenges with uh, elderly patients and breast cancer is that a lot of the decision-making is based on uh, just consensus and uh, on um, you know individualized decision making, but we don't have a lot of uh, clinical trial information to guide us because traditionally patients with um, breast cancer diagnosed at an older age uh, have participated less in clinical trials, and that's why it's important that we have awareness of this so that we can uh, change that, and and that is changing a little bit, and we're seeing more trials focused specifically on the. Um, on on older women uh, uh, specifically to try to tease out differences in in biology and in tr- uh, tr- uh, you know in the older clinical trials you know older women may have been uh, excluded from them but also because in a clinical trial you know can can pose some challenges like uh, you know restricting uh, the treatment and management to a specific bigger center and some older women may not have access to a bigger cancer center that offers clinical trials because it may be farther from where they leave and they have mo- mobilization difficulties or decreased support. So uh, I think that uh, whenever there's an opportunity to participate in a trial that may offer access to novel approaches and may also help us learn more on what's the best approach for uh, women in this situation so that we can guide the future generations with Breast cancer uh, at an older age with uh, with more uh, objective data on 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 the risk and what treatments would be more um, uh, likely to help them. So I think that uh, that's that's an introduction. I think uh, I'll give it back to uh, Caroline now. Oh,
1: thank you so much, uh, Dr. Leon Pierre. That was really outstanding and wonderful introduction to the. Um, to, the, to the call and, um, and about um, breast cancer in older women and um, some of the details. So thank you so much. I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Preeti Suthindra, Um and uh, Dr. Sutendra is a hematologist, medical oncologist. She's medical director of quality improvement, Cooper University Healthcare, a cancer genetics program. Uh, hematology and medical oncology, and with MD Anderson Cancer Center at Cooper, and she's assistant professor of medicine, Cooper Medical School at Rowland University. And Dr. Sutendra is going to address new treatment approaches, improving your clinical outcomes with new technologies and tests, understanding tools that help predict the risks, and how these tools inform your treatment choices, including one chemotherapies. And it's really my great pleasure now to turn this panel over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Sutendra.
3: Thank you, Carolyn, and thank you uh, to everyone who is on the call today. Uh, I'm just going to cover um, what Carolyn mentioned about some new tools that we have to help predict uh, risk of recurrence, as well as those tools that can be used to help tailor treatment. Um, just to give you um, a little bit of background, what we consider the standard Uh, predictors of how well someone will do um, in the long run with their breast cancer are things like the size of their tumor, um, something that we call the grade of their tumor, whether there's any lymph nodes involved, um, and as my colleague mentioned, uh, someone's comorbidities or other medical conditions um, that may or may not limit the type of treatment that they receive. Uh, So, for many years, these were the standard things that we looked at um, to determine risk. Um, Also, regardless of these uh, predictors, um, all women, um, you know, many years ago, did get chemotherapy to help lower their risk of recurrence. In the past several years, there have been a couple tests to really help uh, delineate um, amongst all women that have breast cancer, are there some women who would benefit from chemotherapy more than others? Is there any way to dial back on treatment in women who who have low-risk features? So in addition to the standard predictors of outcomes that I mentioned, Um, The first, meaning a test of the genes, uh, which will breast cancer tumor uh, was something called the oncotype test, that is a test of 21 different genes. Um, We send that on the actual tumor sample. And these tests are performed um, in women whose tumors are hormone receptor positive or uh, estrogen receptor positive. Um, The Oncotype test is very useful for two reasons, Um, and oncologists really like using this test um, in situations where women um, have hormone receptor-positive tumors, whereas the lymph nodes are negative or clean. There's no cancer there. And the big question was, we know that that group of women will most likely get hormone-blocking pills. So is there any benefit on top of that hormone-blocking pill backbone of treatment to adding chemotherapy or not? Just about the risk of recurrence uh, based on the score, but also is there any benefit um, from adding chemotherapy to that backbone of hormone-blocking treatment? More recently, the second test that has come along is something called the print test. Uh, that is a 70-gene assay. Um, and, again, we're looking at genes uh, inside the actual tumor specimen. Um, that test is also used by some oncologists. Uh, the one uh, difference is that when the studies were done for that test, although it did give great information in terms of um, how well people did based on their risk score with print, it did not add that extra information in terms of uh, specifically looking at whether chemotherapy um, added to any benefit in reducing that risk of recurrence. So those are two very common tests that your oncologist may discuss with you in the appropriate situations uh, to help look at your risk and, again, help tailor your treatment and what would be most helpful in lowering the risk of recurrence. Thank you, Carolyn.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Dr. St. Henry. That was really outstanding and really uh, very informative and, and helpful in terms of helping everyone understand the purpose of the various um, tests and tools that are available and how it can help inform the treatment. So thank you very much. And our next speaker is Dr. Lydia Shapira, um, and Dr. Shapira is Associate Professor of Medicine, Stanford School of Medicine, Director of Cancer Survivorship Program, Stanford Cancer Institute. Um, And Dr. Shapira is going to address key questions to ask your healthcare team, managing side effects, discomfort, and pain, and other health problems, and tips to enhance your quality of life. It's really my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Shapira. Thank
4: you so much, Carolyn. It's such a pleasure to be with all of you. So let's think a little bit about what makes the older uh, woman with breast cancer, the older patient, different from her younger counterparts, and uh, some of the issues involved in the way oncologists and doctors think about older patients with cancer really have to do with just being more precise and delivering the right amount of treatment. What often happens in cancer treatment is the treatment seems worse than the disease, and so we want to be sure that we don't over-treat older women who perhaps have also a more indolent biology, as my colleague uh, addressed in his comments earlier on. But we also don't want to undertreat older women. We want to get it just right. We want to be precise in our recommendations for treatment. And this kind of thinking has really informed many of the trial designs and many of the questions that the breast cancer research community has been asking. Do older women, do women over 70 with small tumors need same amount of surgery do they um, do they benefit from chemotherapy to the same extent? Sometimes they do. sometimes perhaps the benefit isn't so great. How much should we be doing for screening and prevention? There are so many questions. We want to really make sure that through this program we um, uh, draw some attention and heighten the awareness of the fact that aging also takes a certain toll on the body. But may also, uh, she needs to ask different questions, and she needs to think about how that breast cancer will affect her health and the rest of her life. So just to get us started thinking about this, I think there are some key questions that I would advise a patient or a dear friend or a relative to ask of herself, of her family, and of her healthcare team, And that is first, you know, how will the treatment for this illness affect other issues in my life? Will it affect my independence? Will it affect my ability to care for myself? How will it impact on some of the other diseases that I've been living with? And then more specifically, when you meet the healthcare team, I think it's important for everybody, but especially for older patients and family caregivers, to know who is there for them. What are the resources available? Who to call, who to call if there's a side effect, who to call if there's a question, who to call if the instructions of how to take a medication aren't clear, or perhaps the symptoms seem different than what was explained in a clinic or office visit. And then the next question I think that's really important is to know if the primary care physician or perhaps a geriatrician or other uh, important healthcare professionals who are involved in care will be part of the cancer team we often take over as oncologists and we assume all of these roles while patients are under our care. But especially for older patients and older women being treated for breast cancer, it's really important to have that continuity to involve somebody like a primary care physician um, who knows you, who has been with you through other medical crises, and who can also weigh in on how the cancer treatment may affect other areas of life and include, of course, in that consideration how it it will impact quality. So those are the kinds of things that I think are very important to have in mind and to begin to think about. When we think about geriatric medicine or the care of older patients, in general, we think of four areas that make this difference. And one is the amount of medications older patients are typically those with some medications used to treat cancer or given in the operative period, we think we need to think about mobility, the ability to move independently. And if we are going to give something that can cause uh, somnolence or drowsiness or dizziness, we need to be more careful in older patients. The third area is mentation or the ability to think and think through complex problems. Sometimes that slows down and that may affect the ability to know when to call if there is a symptom or maybe affect the ability to know how to take um, complex medications. Increasingly, we're asking our patients to take cancer treatments, even oral cancer therapies at home. And so it's very important to pay attention to that part, the ability to make good decisions and to be able to think through complex situations. And finally, the area that may be different for older patients is that they may be more willing and ready to really talk about what really matters to them, what matters in their life. And that goes directly to the heart of quality of life. But it may also affect decision-making about whether or not to have more complex surgery, whether or not to um, have radiation treatment or take treatment that could be um, harsher on the body and uh, may have more consequences. And that brings us to the second aspect that I was asked to address, which is how to manage this. And I would say that one of the differences in managing symptoms for older patients is usually there is some involvement of family caregivers if there are complex symptoms. I mean, being treated for breast cancer may be easy, but it may not be so easy, new challenges. And so it's really important to have a system and to help um help your healthcare professionals and perhaps family caregivers or other loved ones to um have a good dialogue about how to manage that symptom. It all begins with being able to report the symptom to be able to say, "Look, I have pain, and the pain is interfering with my life in this way or that way." So what I would advise you to do if you're the patient with uh, symptoms such as pain or fatigue is be um, almost a detective or a reporter and learn to um, to speak the language of the healthcare professional. They'll ask you, do you wake up tired? Does, is sleep refreshing or not? Um, do you think your fatigue is, is caused in part by, by your mood? Could it be that you're sad and that's also draining your energy or is it really physical? Same with pain. They'll ask you, how long it lasts, what makes it better. And often what we do in our effort to try to help patients is ask them to rate pain. And we have a a series of of faces that we put up and ask patients to say which one um, resonates with their lived experience or give them numbers, one being the mildest form of pain and 10 being the most excruciating kind of pain. So we do that so that we can have a better idea. Of how uh, how to um, um, how to treat and how to medicate or how to sometimes medical non-pharmacological ways of overcoming pain and discomfort. So fatigue is a very important symptom that needs to be reported as is pain, and then memory can be affected sometimes by cancer treatments. It's important to to report that as well. And sleep sleep is often a casualty and is is sometimes a problem already for older individuals, even without cancer. Sleep changes over the life cycle. So if, if one is unable to sleep and to think about the concept, one may be more irritable the next day or less able to tolerate some discomfort. So it's important to address that as well. And the final symptom that's very common as a result of cancer treatment is that many uh, medications used to treat cancer affect. The tiny little nerves in our body and cause neuropathy. And older patients who may already have conditions that predispose them to neuropathy that are unrelated to their cancers, such as diabetes, may often experience more of this very, very um, unpleasant side effect, which causes either numbness, numbness or tingling or pain, typically in toes and fingertips. So, my final comments really have to do with. Uh, things that you can think of doing, the tips to maintain the best possible quality of life. I would say, first of all, is gather some supporters around you. They could be family or friends or caregivers. But it, if at all possible, it's helpful to have some community of support. It, it's helpful to just talk through uh, some dilemmas or some through some difficult moments, or if there are decisions that need to be made, and feel the support of, of your healthcare professionals, but also your own family and personal community. Having support and having social support is really important, and I'm very um, excited to know we're going to talk a little bit more about that um, right after, because sometimes through these exchanges with others who've gone through similar experiences, you can learn, we can all learn how others have handled problems and even learn some very helpful tips so that we can improve our own life. And my final thought is really to um, use age as, um, as a way of, of helping you think through what you're prepared to invest in your cancer treatment and um, be very careful to balance the possible side effects of treatment with the um, with the benefits that you're looking for. So have good conversations and think through the trade-offs that are involved and try to find the best um, approach to handling the cancer and the cancer treatment so that it preserves quality of life and uh, doesn't affect uh, a careful balance between, you know, health and illness. And with that, I'd like to turn it back to Carolyn.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Shapiro. As always, that was wonderful, and uh, again, very thoughtfully presented, and uh, lots of information for people to kind of think about and um, and and go back to the healthcare team with. So thank you very much. And um, our next speaker is Ms. Stacy Shilton. Ms. Shilton is an oncology social worker, and she is Cancer Care's uh, women's program coordinator and she will be presenting on Cancer Care's free psychosocial programs and services and the role of support groups. It's really my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Chilton.
5: Thank you so much, Dr. Messner. I'm also very happy to be part of this program today. And as Dr. Shapira just mentioned, it really is so important to make sure that during your your journey here that you are building in the supports that can really help you cope. So we've been talking today about managing your care and quality of life. And and as I said, I want to just speak a little bit about the importance of creating a support network really as part of your medical care and how cancer care can help be part of that network. Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization that provides free professional support services to anyone impacted by cancer. And our programs include things like individual counseling, which we offer face-to-face in our New York City area as well as over the telephone nationwide. Support groups provided face-to-face, telephonically, and online. Educational programs like this one, practical help and assistance navigating the healthcare system, as well as some limited financial assistance. And all of our services are completely free of charge and provided by licensed master's level oncology social workers. Oncology social workers are trained in how a diagnosis of cancer affects the person as well as his or her family and friends. We're also trained to help patients and their supports tackle the company this diagnosis, like financial, social and psychological adjustment, and the impact of all of those. Adjusting to and finding ways of coping in all of the areas I just mentioned are really an important part of this process. As you likely know, cancer impacts the whole person as well as his or her family and friends. And we want you to know that asking for help, whether you are in treatment, a caregiver or loved one, by joining a support group or by contacting us about our counseling or other services is really a sign of strength. You do not have to do this alone. Joining a support group can be a way to connect with others who are going through similar situations and likely are experiencing similar issues and individual counseling can provide you a space to voice any concerns and navigate some of the issues we've been mentioning. Often, these communications help lessen the isolation that many people with cancer and their loved ones experience. And ultimately, we found that feeling well emotionally can help you better deal with your diagnosis and treatment. So I did want to mention that at this time, Cancer Care is currently recruiting for multiple of our support groups for our summer cycle, which will begin in June, we offer an online breast cancer support group for stages one through three, as well as a dedicated metastatic breast cancer online support group. We also have a telephone support group for women who are dealing with metastatic breast cancer, and we can also help you locate resources wherever you're located. If you're interested in any of these services, you can reach out to us at our helpline, which is one 800 813 or you can visit our website, which is www.cancercare.org. Our website has a lot of comprehensive information on all of our free services, as well as some educational materials and more information on your diagnosis and treatment. On our website, you can also register for future workshops like this one or those online support groups that I mentioned. We've learned a lot from today's program, and there's certainly a lot of information to digest. Our social workers can help you understand what it means for you and your support network. If you have any questions about today's workshop or any of those free services I mentioned, please do reach out to us. And finally, please remember that you are not alone. Cancer Care Services are here to help you and your support network. Thank you so much for your attention, and thank you, Dr. Messner, for the opportunity to participate today.
1: Oh, well, thank you so much, Mrs. Chilton. That was really wonderful and just um, very um, comprehensive about the services of cancer care, how to access them. And we really do encourage everyone to, if you haven't already contacted us, to go ahead and contact um, our staff here and uh, our oncology session staff. So I thank all our speakers because we now have time for questions. We have actually a lot of time for questions. So I'm I'm going to ask uh, uh, Crystal to explain to all of you how to queue up for questions. And I'm going to also ask Crystal to bring all of our speakers on board so that we can address all of your questions. Um, And we'll try to take as many of your questions as possible. And if we don't get to all your questions at the end of the call, then what I'll do is I will give you information um, about how to get your questions answered um, if we didn't you didn't get to ask your question, or if you think of a question in a couple of days, especially some of your medical questions that might come up. Um, So, uh, Crystal?
0: Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press the star, then 1, on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And our first question comes from Allison S. Your line is open.
1: Thank you very much, and thank you for a wonderful presentation. It's actually a two-part question, if that's okay. We're quite a group here listening. The first part is the lack of um, any information or addressing side effects in sexuality, making an assumption that women 70 or over or 65 and over are not engaged (laughs) in sex. So I would love to hear a little about that. The other part of that is this age group having kind of arthritic and and bone pain to begin with, and the aromatase inhibitors even making that worse. So um, I'll take the first question first um, in terms of uh, information about sexuality and side effects affecting them. And uh, uh, Dr. Um, Shapiro, do you want to start with that one?
4: Sure. So um, I love the question. Thank you. I thought about it, and I, I did not include Uh, Sexual dysfunction, I have to provide a very general overview and and especially as a lady who was in her 80s and was offended by the fact that her surgeon had made a comment um, that uh, she interpreted as uh, his dismissing her interest in her body image because of her age. So please, uh, I I do not have such uh, biases. Um, Sexual dysfunction for all women who um, are on estrogen deprivation therapies is an issue and um it it is not just that it makes sexual activity impossible or uncomfortable but there are other issues that happen as well there may be some bleeding and itching and and uh and actual discomfort so um the this needs to be discussed uh, there is no one I can't give medical advice, but I will say that there are different ways of approaching it. First, with moisturizers, with lubricants, and then, if necessary, with uh, small doses of vaginal estrogen. But this needs to be personalized, individualized, and uh, we typically include either a gynecological exam or some uh, some more more in depth and detailed history to try to come up with the right kind of treatment plan. But yes. And this is definitely uh, an issue for women of all ages.
1: Excellent. And um, any of our other speakers like to address this? And uh, thank you very much, Dr. Shapira. Anyone else want to add to this? Um, It's a very important question.
5: Sure. Carolyn, um, I I just wanted to say thank you as well so much for this question. I think it's so important. And I just wanted to point out that this comes up so frequently in our groups. Um, Actually, in, in our online groups, Um, especially one of the groups that I had run in the past, Um, you know, you would be surprised how frequently this comes up, and people have really shared with us that it is such an important topic because maybe they feel like they can't bring it up to their doctors or they feel um, embarrassed or that that shouldn't be the focus of their appointment. But what we really tell people is if it's not being brought up and it's something that is of concern to you, don't be afraid to really initiate that conversation yourself And I also wanted to say that we have a lot of great resources about this topic specifically on our website, cancercare.org. We have multiple publications that are free that you can view online or download specifically about things such as coping with intimacy concerns. Um, This is also something that we frequently talk about, of course, not from a medical standpoint, but that we frequently talk about in our individual counseling sessions. So that, that can be a resource to you as well.
3: Excellent. And
1: that is is—it's so important. Um, and Dr. Suhender, do you want to add anything as well?
3: Yeah, I just wanted to add also, it is a very personalized treatment, as Dr. Shapira mentioned, um, not only to be discussed with your oncologist, but as she mentioned, um, either a gynecologist, uh, sometimes we pull in the expertise of a urogynecologist, Um, And also there is an emerging field of uh, physical therapy called pelvic floor therapy, uh, which can be helpful with some of those um, discomfort issues that can happen.
1: Excellent. Thank you. And and Dr. Um Real do you want to add as well? This is wonderful. This is a this could be its yeah, own. I, it
3: was,
2: <laughs> I was gonna just um uh, address a little more the second part of the question, you know, uh with the bone mm-hmm. pain and aromatase inhibitors, uh which is a, an, unfortunately a very common issue that we face in clinic and that a lot of women um uh, struggle with. So there's a, there's been some some uh, you know progress in, in, in addressing this and there's some uh, just wanted to make uh, the audience aware that there are some non-pharmacological ways of addressing it that have been proven to be uh, of uh, some efficacy, including uh, things like acupuncture, and there's a uh uh, uh, several medication approaches as well that that can help the situation outside of just over-the-counter, um, you know, things like Tylenol and ibuprofen. There's uh, certain medications like Zimbalta that can also be um, uh, effective in controlling uh, arthritis or bone pain induced by aromatase inhibitors. So it's important to have that conversation and review the options because obviously we wouldn't want you to struggle with those symptoms and just push through um, to try to remain on your treatment when there's Several options that we can uh, go through, including in some situations, for example, just switching the type of aromatase inhibitor that someone may be taking. You know, for reasons that we don't fully understand, sometimes um, women have uh, very significant side effects with one particular aromatase inhibitor, and then we simply switch to a different one, and and sometimes that uh, agrees better with with them. So, uh, just discuss these options with your team and 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 find a, a strategy uh, that works for you.
1: Excellent. and indeed having that that can affect sexuality if you're having physical pain from uh, you know aches and pains that, that can also clearly affect your um your sexual um satisfaction as well so that's another issue well wow, this has been i think this should be its own call i um any any thoughts about that before we um move on Okay, well, and if there are other people who have questions on the line and wanna want to raise them again, please do. Um, but that's an excellent question. Now we have um some more questions from our phone participants at this point. So um Crystal.
0: Thank you. Our next question comes from Stephanie Kay. Your line is open.
6: Thank you, Caroline. Excellent seminar as usual. Um I'm eleven year breast cancer survivor, double negative and heard two positive. But I was less than sixty five. My cool questions are uh first question is i like to know that uh, I was told by my doctors to take the vitamin D and to do at least between 1,000 and 2,000 a day, and it should be over 50 to 70 level. That's what I wanted to know for older patients. I know many other older women who also need to know this on the vitamin D if it's safe to do um, 1,000 to 2,000 and to reach to 70, is there levels because you don't want it too high, or... It can be dangerous that way, and also my second is for peripheral neuropathy. I'd like to know for older women, should they also be taken? I was talking a lot of times about alpha lipoic acid, B six, and and then selenium possibly for the neuropathy of the hands and feet. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you for those questions. Um, so I'm going to ask, I guess, Dr. Shapiro, if you could address the questions about the neuropathy and I guess about the vitamin, the supplements as well.
4: So I may need the help of my colleagues here. Uh, okay. To the best of my knowledge, the uh, selenium and alpha acid have not been conclusively shown to improve the symptoms of chemotherapy-induced neuropathy, and um, I'm not aware of any um, science. Uh, maybe I'm behind, but I'm not aware of any science stating that the level that the desired level of vitamin D is that high. Um, I do recommend the 1,000 to 2,000 a day. I think that's pretty standard, although primary care docs recommend a little less, but we in oncology have gone for the higher doses. Um, But as long as it's a normal range, I I would uh, accept that. I don't think that um, I would aim for anything higher because of the patient's age, but I'd be be very interested in in, uh, hearing what my colleagues say.
2: And I would... Oh, Sorry.
1: Yes, oh yes, please that's unfair yes please. okay,
2: so uh, yeah, and I would echo that, I think that you know there's a lot of uh <clears throat> Interest in vitamin D in general. I think that you know uh, I, we have to make the distinction too about uh, what's the indication for it, and and uh, you know in some situations we may recommend, a, you know, uh, osteoporosis or they have a vitamin D deficiency that is impacting their bone health. Uh, but I've also um, you know have patients uh, address directly whether the vitamin D would have a, a significant benefit in terms of the anti-cancer. Effect. Uh, there's a lot of uh, discussion of this. I think uh, uh, in certain forums. And uh, what we know, I think that in most, in many cancers, uh, uh, certain uh, when someone has a low vitamin D level, um, you know, there's some correlations uh, of those patients perhaps um, having doing less well than some that would have a normal vitamin D level. Uh, however, we haven't uh, seen any data that truly. Can prove causation, meaning that the fact that someone has a low vitamin D level may have nothing to do with the uh, cancer itself, but maybe maybe a a reflection of, you know, a a less optimal nutritional status, for example. So uh, just taking vitamin D would not necessarily reverse or improve the the cancer outcome itself, at least not that we have any solid data for uh, in breast cancer, to my knowledge. But uh, it's more about the bone health. And then I I would agree with the full neuropathy statement that uh, similarly, um, you know, the vitamin B12 is primarily for someone that has neuropathy induced by deficiency of vitamin B12, uh, which which is a very common cause of, uh, of peripheral neuropathy. But for the purposes of um, chemotherapy-induced neuropathy, it may not uh, necessarily uh, treat it adequately, and I don't think that there's any data. Similarly with selenium and folic acid, uh, at least to my knowledge. And I would say that those uh, uh, would apply to both younger and older women as well.
1: Thank you. That's excellent. And and Dr. Sanhendra, do you want to add anything as well?
3: Yeah. um, So we know that uh, women with vitamin D deficiency or low level, very low levels of vitamin D, that can be a cause of uh, bone pain. So uh, in those patients, as well as patients, uh, as my colleague mentioned, who have osteoporosis, Um, We do want to replace uh, vitamin D um, to adequate levels. Uh, In terms of what the optimal vitamin D level is, uh, is a little bit unclear. Um, And some studies that suggest that maintaining it on a a higher end, um, as you asked in your question, um may help with some of the uh arthritis type of pain uh caused by the aromatase inhibitors, but the data is very mixed and unclear. Excellent.
1: Well this is we really have a a great uh, our audience and fantastic speakers as well. Both all wonderful. This is a great questions. And um we have a question from our online participants. So I'd put one of those in right now. Um and um, this question um so this question I'm going to direct to um, well, Dr. Fr- Dr. Frere. Since 60 is the new 40, when considering treatment for older women, is it decided case by case, considering the person and not necessarily the chronological age?
2: Absolutely. I think that uh, yeah, uh, it, that's a very uh, a very accurate statement. So the the age influences things a bit, but more importantly how uh how how's the physical health of that i have certainly met um uh, patients in you know in their mid 80s that are very physically active and have led a very um uh healthy lifestyle and 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 have you know a medication list that is shorter than mine <laughs> at a younger age so um uh in those patients you know we we should not be uh, you know deceived or have the bias of just uh, uh making decisions exclusively based on on the chronological age i think we have to uh, take into account the overall health and um and what's the physical you know, age, if you will, of that patient. And um, we certainly individualize treatment based on that uh, because um, uh, you can be surprised that many times uh, older patients uh, can tolerate uh, certain treatments that uh, younger patients actually uh, struggle more with. Um, so I think that there's a, there's a lot of um, uh, you know uh, consideration that we have to put on that. Um, in addition, this this goes again to the uh, to the point that my colleagues were making that you know we want to try to get the treatment right and not uh, under treat or over treat. And certainly, um, I think that um, you know because of fears of causing harm, we may under treat certain women that have a, a breast cancer that could benefit from more intensive treatments as chemotherapy. And that's where um, the the other medical conditions and, and, and physical stamina of the patient uh, weigh a lot more in my mind than the chronological age.
1: Excellent. Thank you. thank you. Anyone else want to comment? It seems to it's very comprehensive. Any other
0: thoughts? Okay. Excellent. Um, thank you. Our next question comes from Marcia R. Your line is open. Yes.
1: Thank you. Um, Dr. Benindraff, Mentioned two different sets of tests that are used to help predict the risk of recurrence. Can you, um, can you possibly take yourself off speaker so we can hear you a bit clearer?
4: Yes, I thought I did. I'm sorry. Oh, thank um, yes, you. Oh, thank Dr. So Dr. Sanhindra mentioned that there were two types of tests that are used to help predict the risk of recurrence. I know the first one was the Onco test. What was the second group of tests,
1: and could she elaborate on those, please? Oh, thank you. Thanks. Dr. Sanhindra? Yes.
3: Sure. The second test was something called a MAMA print test. Uh, both of these tests are in the scope of what we call genomic assays, or looking at tumors inside, uh, I'm sorry, genes inside the tumor specimen. Uh, the MAMA print was a 70 gene assay, oncotype is a 21 gene assay. Um, in the studies that were done with Mammoprint, uh what they did uh, was actually combine what the score was on the gene assay, uh, whether it was high or low, uh, in combination with those standard predictors that we talked about, so size of a tumor, lymph node status, and those um, uh were given a score of high or low uh so they looked at um these four combinations of high low between those two um predictions uh to help look at uh which groups um had a higher or lower uh risk of recurrence. Um,
1: any other thoughts about that any other speakers okay. Um,
0: Thank you. Our next question comes from Beverly H. Your line is open.
1: I have a question. Oh,
0: okay, one moment. Hello, can, can you hear me?
1: Um, can you take yourself off the chair a little bit?
0: Okay. Can I have a question in regards to people who have already have diagnoses of fibromyalgia, perhaps, and um, the other question was already answered, and how, uh, Painful has that been? I mean, has it been a large increase in people experiencing even more pain? I would think so based on the answers that have already been given.
1: Okay. Um, so, um, Dr. Shapiro, do you want to address it in terms of side effects? So, um, fibromyalgia
4: is a chronic condition that... Um, also is associated with muscle and joint pain and sometimes sleep problems and can be very difficult to treat there is no specific blood test for fibromyalgia so um different uh so so there has been some uh, there's there's definitely overlap between the symptoms described by patients with fibromyalgia and many women on chronic aromatase inhibition which works, you know, by lowering the amount of available estrogen in the body. Um I although I have anecdotes of patients who've been who've had both, uh, I am not aware and I have looked actually for good scientific series on this. There is some overlap in some, and there are some people who've uh, tried to study this. And also, actually, there's interesting science on those who've studied chronic fatigue syndrome and uh, some of the uh, fatigue that uh, is described by patients who've been treated for cancer. So, uh, all this to say that there is some overlap in some of the symptoms that are experienced by patients who have, who have other unremitting chronic conditions. But, uh, it's hard to answer your question precisely um i again, I only have anecdotes to say that I've had patients who've had fibromyalgia and then have been able to take aromatase inhibitors, although um I comment with any authority and make a prediction as to whether the symptoms would be more severe um or not for for somebody with who has both.
1: Thank you very much and Dr St. Hender and Dr. Leon Fair, do you wish to mention?
3: Um I was just going to add that it is uh you know individual um just because someone has a uh coexisting uh diagnosis um every patient uh is very different so some may experience a worsening of symptoms and others may not Um
1: and we have another question and um I'm going to ask uh, Dr. Leon oh, sure if you could address this. Um, are there any cases in which you would? Um,
2: yeah, so uh, there's a. Um, uh... You know, there's a concern that certain antidepressants um, would uh, potentially interfere with the metabolism of tamoxifen. So tamoxifen is a drug that uh, when you take, uh, you know, the actual tamoxifen is uh, is not the active anti-cancer agent. Uh, that drug has to be metabolized by the liver and broken down into some other the ones that actually have the anti-cancer effect. Uh, so there's been a lot of controversies about the impact of certain other medications, particularly antidepressants, uh, in the metabolism of tamoxifen, and there's um there's some mixed data as well that suggests that um some antidepressants may lower the levels of the metabolites of tamoxifen and that could. Uh, in turn, increase the risk of cancer recurrence. But there has been a lot of um, other data, too, that has um, um, you know, found that there's no association. So, I think that um, we field uh, in that topic. Uh, so, in general, just uh, because there's some question about the potential uh, effect on tamoxifen, you know, I personally generally try to uh, avoid certain medications that could interfere with tamoxifen if, if I feel that uh, there's a, a high risk of breast cancer, but of course we have to individualize care and if someone is struggling with depression uh, and, and, and one of these medications would be uh, the best way to uh, to address that, we have to take that into consideration and, and if the potential benefits of the antidepressant uh, outweigh the risks of this theoretical interaction, I certainly would um, uh, you know, uh, counsel my patient into into doing what's best for their mental health. But it has to be an individualized medicine uh, decision uh, with your team, including the psychiatrist, trying to find out whether uh, there are other potential options that would be less impactful uh, on the metabolism of tamoxifen. Um, you know, and, and if there's none, well, then, you know, uh, potentially assume that theoretical risk, knowing that the dangers of depression are very radical.
1: Excellent. And um, Stacey, do you want to comment on that as well, with children?
5: <coughs> I'm sorry. Could you repeat the question? I was listening to the other speakers. Oh, I'm sorry. So the um, the question was about taking um, antidepressant medication while on tamoxifen.
1: Yeah. It probably comes up in the group a lot.
5: um. <coughs> Sure. Yeah, of course, I, I can't advise medically, but I can say just anecdotally that, that that concern does come up in some of our counseling sessions and groups here, people uh, that are maybe on some antidepressants already and concerned about exacerbating it, or sometimes people have concerns about um, new developments in, say, depression or mood changes from those medications, which, of course, I, I, again, can't advise medically on, but it is something that comes up. And if someone um, comes to me with concerns about that, I would definitely recommend that they bring those back to their medical team if they have a, if they already have a a psychiatrist or someone who's been overseeing those medications, it can sometimes be helpful to maybe go revisit that person if you haven't been there in a while um, and and make sure they're collaborating with the oncology team as well. It's very important that if there's going to be any changes that everyone that's involved is, is aware of that certainly.
1: Especially an important point when you think about it, actually, um, this call today is a multidisciplinary group, and to some extent, the more people who can weigh in on something and be helpful and work together makes a very big difference. Now, we have um, just one or two questions more from our online participants. Um, so, uh, so there's one question here, um, and I'm going to give this question to um, uh, Dr. William um, Is is there an age when one wouldn't be a candidate for treatment
2: um well i think that that ties into a little bit about what we um had discussed before of chronological age versus uh, comorbidities and depending on what the goals of treatment are you know so i i don't think that i can uh define a particular uh, you know, age threshold as at which we would say no treatment is needed. I think that in certain situations even though we may you know, if someone is uh you know, at the extreme uh edges of age, you know, if someone is uh, you know, have has a short life expectancy just because of their of their chronological age, you know, we would certainly be uh, uh, much more mindful in the potential side effects that the particular medication regimen we're recommending would, would incur and we would be less willing to accept uh, side effects of course. But um I think that more than the age again is is what are the other uh medical conditions and what's the life expectancy of that patient uh, independent of the breast cancer.
1: Excellent and um another question at the Dr. Shatira. Um can you talk about the issues related to older women who have been diagnosed with triple negative breast cancer? <clears throat> Sorry
4: Carolyn, were you directing that to me? Sorry. Uh, So uh, triple negative breast cancer um, is um, less common in the um, older age group, but certainly can. Um, And again, it depends a little bit on how we're defining age. Um, I would say the best way to address this is that the individual patient with triple negative should receive the best possible care. And limit the ability to tolerate some treatment such as chemotherapy, which is more typically a part of that, then that needs to be dealt with on a case-by-case, organ-by-organ measure and with involvement of, of the patient's primary care or other uh, physicians perhaps who are already involved in uh, in looking after her general health. So the answer is yes, there is treatment and we should not exclude anybody just
1: based on their chronological age. Excellent. And um, then last question uh, for Dr. Um, Mm Siddhantra. Is 70 the age at which the oncologist community typically regards a patient as older?
3: Um, So I just wanted to reiterate uh, what my colleague said. Um, It's hard to just look at uh, a number uh, as an isolated Um, uh, age, you know, someone's other medical conditions or what we call comorbidities. um, You know, we all have uh, friends and acquaintances and two different uh, women who are age 70, uh, maybe in a totally different medical situation. So I don't think that there's a a specific number uh, that oncologists consider um, someone to be elderly um, uh, nor do we look at a specific number by itself in determining uh, somebody's treatment plan.
1: Excellent. I want to thank our speakers. Uh, This has been an extraordinary call. I want to to thank our speakers. Um, And They can't hear us applauding, but we are applauding you. I have asked such really terrific questions that really enhanced the call today. And um, I said to you that if you do have questions that we didn't get them answered, that at the end of the call I would tell you where to go to get your questions answered. So I, I want to just address that right away. Um and I have to say this has been an extraordinary call and there have been some issues raised during the call, the sexuality issue, that really merits its own call. And so um we'll be we're planning many programs for this year. So tell us what you'd like and and this is a wonderful many of their questions were just really um Makes one think about doing more programs on topics that really are important for all of you. Um, so if you have a question that didn't get answered, um, we always recommend that you, of course, speak directly to your healthcare team. Of course, they know you best. Um, but many of you like to go other places for information before you go to your healthcare team. So I recommend a credible resource, which is the National Cancer Institute. Um, and for both our um, participants on In this country, in the U.S. and internationally, they have a a website, www.cancer.gov, and actually has a live chat feature where you can post your question, and their information specialists will address it. So you have really nice information that you can take back to your treating healthcare team. But I never want you to sidestep your healthcare team as well. They're really important to bring into the loop all the time. Um, And for those of you who would like to pursue some psychosocial counseling um, with one of our oncology social workers here at Cancer Care, simply call Cancer Care, and we'll be sending you all the phone numbers and websites, of course, at the end of the call when you get the evaluation, and so um, you'll get all that information as well. Um, And perhaps most importantly, we don't want any one of you to feel you're alone in coping with um, with, with, with breast cancer with couple 19 uh, uh, being older and, and having breast cancer, we want you to now know that you're part of this community of support here, and we're here to help you. And um, you simply can call Cancer Care, and there are many other resources as well that we've listed for you to contact as well. And I do want to remind all of you that we have a, a program coming up that's most interesting. It's called Current Perspectives on Cancer Survivorship. And clearly, based on the questions you've all asked today, that this call might be quite relevant to all of you. It's on Tuesday, June 19th. Some of you may already know about this call, but if you don't, I would say go ahead and sign up for it. Um, And um, you'll be getting a listing of all the programs we do have coming up. But that one I thought was particularly of interest to some of you on the call today, or many of you just based on the participation today and your questions. Again, I want to thank you all a very fine, I want to wish you all a very fine day, and thank you all for your participation. Thank you.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.